Right, if you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to uh, the book of 1 Samuel chapter 18. We'll be starting there today. Uh, and again, let me say a welcome to you, especially if you are a, if this is your first time to gather with us. Uh, we are so glad that you are here. And if it is, I need to let you know we're in the midst of a series through four books. First and Second Samuel, which is one book in the original, and First and Second Kings, which is one book in the original, and with our prayer being that the the Lord willing, um, He has, God has, and this will grow our faith and trust in Christ, all right, in God, in His promises and in His faithfulness. That's one of the major kind of lessons from this entire book is that God is faithful. That He will not leave us, He will not forsake us, He will not cast you aside, He will not abandon you, He will not run out on you. He will continue to provide for you because He's faithful. Prince Jesus is faithful to His people. And everybody look right at me because you really got to get this part. Even in the midst of mess. Maybe especially in the midst of our mess. He meets us in that moment, in that time. He is with us. He walks with us. He meets us in the mess, in the difficulty. That's just one of the warm blankets that comes out of this entire book. That God is faithful even in the midst of mess. And that messiness kind of frames the background of where we're going to be at in chapter 18. We're going to be covering three chapters today. I'm not going to read them all like I typically do. I'm going to paraphrase for the sake of time uh, at part of it. But it frames the background of what's going on here. Because if you know the story of David and how before he became officially the king, he was constantly on the run from Saul. Or if you don't know that story, that's what these three chapters are about. They set that up, like how that happens, how he's constantly on the run because he's been in Saul's house and he's going to be taken in kind of permanently for a little while until he has to start running. And so that's kind of what the story is about today. But as I was looking through this this week, there were two things that really popped off the the page to me. So I want to tell the story, but I also want to talk about kind of two takeaways that occurred to me as I read through that. One's a warning and one's an encouragement. And we'll hit the warning kind of early on, and we'll hit the encouragement kind of later on. But I just want to kind of go through it, kind of help you see this story within the big story that God is preparing a kingdom, and He's preparing David for that kingdom as a precursor to Jesus, eventually to show us the Messiah. And David kind of serves that role, even though, as we'll see in the weeks to come, when he becomes the king, he's got issues as well. He's not a perfect picture of the coming perfect king. But he is a picture nonetheless. But today, let's see how this rolls out and learn a couple of lessons, a couple of takeaways from this as well. So, chapter 18, let's pick it up in verse 1. Like I said, I'll read a little bit, I'll paraphrase a little bit, I'll read a little bit, I'll paraphrase a little bit. But David has just defeated Goliath. He saved the nation of Israel from the Philistines. And so, picking it up in verse 1, chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit or the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. 
So what's going on here is Jonathan and David, we'll see this throughout there, they become fast friends. They're about to make a covenant to one another as friends. But what we see right here, chapter 2, is verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Up until this point, David's just kind of been this kind of part-time, little-known guitar player who would play his guitar for King Saul when he was having one of his spells, all right? When he was in a deep, you know, in a depression, in a, in a dark time in his soul. And he would come and he would play the lyre, his guitar for him. But now that he had gone out and defeated Goliath, he's like, no, I want this guy in my house all the time because that kind of, if he's part of my entourage, that makes me look a little bit better. So I want him in my house. So no longer can he go back and forth from Saul's house to Jesse's house in Bethlehem. Now he's in Saul's entourage permanently. And so verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. And so we can't miss what happens right there in verse 3. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe, of his armor, of his sword, of his bow, of his belt. And this is a huge thing that's taking place. We can read it and just kind of read through it. But what's happening here is he is like that is a symbol of his like who he is. All right. He is the he is. He's the crown prince. He is in line for the throne. And he's saying, no, David, I'm giving you that position. Whether he knows that Samuel has already anointed David or not, I'm not sure. But he's, he's recognizing, he's getting in with what God is already doing. And he's renouncing his claim to the throne and he's giving it to David. And this is crazy in the Near East culture. You do not give someone else a right to the throne. If you have a, someone who's you know, maybe competing for it, what do you do? You eliminate them. But not Jonathan. He sees what God is doing. And he, and he jumps in with what's going on. He doesn't get, you know, he doesn't resent David for God's anointing. He embraces God's plan, even though it meant that he would not be the king. So it came at a cost. He was more interested in the Lord's kingdom than his own kingdom. What about us? What about you? What about me? Whose kingdom are we most interested in? Developing our own little kingdom? Our country's kingdom or God's kingdom? Which one reigns supreme in our loyalties and affections? Jonathan lived for God's kingdom, regardless of what it might cost him personally, but not his daddy, not Saul. Look at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? There's some foreshadowing there. 
And Saul eyed David from that day on. So the women of Israel come out singing the praises of David, like literally, right? And then Saul goes crazy with jealousy, also literally. So look at verse 10. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And then Saul's like, all right, so I'm going to start paraphrasing now. So then Saul's like, well, you know, I didn't get him this way. Let me try to do it in a more covert way. Let me, you know, send him out to war. Let me send him out into the battle. Maybe he'll get killed. But that backfired as well. He wound up having success. And the people praised him all the more. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And so then Saul, is just an amazing dad here, tries to use his daughter, Mishael, as a pawn in his scheme to covertly get David killed. So look at verse 20. Now Saul's daughter, Mishael, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. I mean, wow. What a loving dad. Doesn't everybody want a dad like this? He attempts to kill David through marriage and he uses his daughter as a trap. I mean, I get that in-law relationships can be difficult at times. (laughs) But I'm not real sure of any in-law relationship where they've tried to murder you before you even got married. Or they've plotted to murder at least. That's what's going on here. He's plotting this murder because what he sets as a price as a dowry for the right to marry Mishael, he says that he's got to bring him 100 foreskins of the Philistines. Uh Uh-huh, I just said that. (laughs) That's gross. But in that culture, and this is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay, but in that culture, it's kind of like, it gets kind of like Native Americans with scalps. It's to prove that you actually had killed that many people. Now, the point that Saul, he doesn't care about that. He wants, him to have to, he wants David to have to go fight because he's thinking he's just playing the wall of averages. Man, if he's got to bring me a hundred, if he's got to fight a hundred guys, somewhere in there he's going to slip, he's going to fall, something's going to happen, and he's going to get killed. So that's his whole plan. He's trying to set this up so that David will die. But the word is with him. And David goes out, and he not only gets his hundred, but he brings him two hundred. And so we read in verse 28 of chapter 18. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Mishael, Saul's daughter, loved him, also remember his own son, Jonathan, loves him as well, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. He was his enemy continually. Friends, this is what jealousy does to you. It eats your soul. It eats away and it eats away and it eats away at your soul. Jealousy is a terrible emotion. 
when it's in this direction. There's a good jealousy. God has, he, he's jealous for his people, that he means he loves us, he, he wants the best for us. But jealousy of other people is a terrible emotion. When God described it as a scab that you keep picking at until it festers and gets infected and becomes huge. It's a hunger that you simply cannot satisfy. The more you eat, the emptier you feel, and it forces you to feed on it once again. It's a pain that will not abate, but it persists and it pounds us until we're pushed to the point of no return. Jealousy is a harsh and terrible taskmaster. And many of us bow to this taskmaster of jealousy. It fuels our lives. And this is the first warning that I want us to see out of this text. And so if you want to take notes, number one, I would write, beware of self-centered jealousy. Beware of self-centered jealousy. I mean, I want us to go back to verse 10 for a second in our minds where, you know, you got this picture of Saul raving about his house, just brooding and anger and jealousy, just rehearsing all of this in his mind. They sang, they sang ten thousands of him. They only sang thousands of me. Just brooding on it. It's just festering. It's just welling up inside of him. Even in the midst of David, who's trying to, he's just sitting there, you know, kumbaya, he's trying to calm him down. He's just brooding. He's angry until he gets to the point and he can't take it anymore. And he really throws a spear at him. I wonder how many of us live in this similar way and we just rehearse things in our minds and we just let things that may not even have nothing to do with this, but we sinfully and selfishly and jealously read ourselves into the midst of it, think it's all about us, and we just brood on it. We just think on it. We create this whole narrative in our mind, far divorced from reality. It's just this created narrative in our mind. We believe it as reality. And we just fester with this evil, jealous, these resentful thoughts about others. Maybe even turning people who should be our friends into enemies because of this narrative we've created And we have an attitude that is as sharp and dangerous as Saul's spear. And like that spear, in our anger and jealousy, we then hurl words at those around us. Maybe they don't have anything to do with it, but they're around us. And so we throw the spear of our words and our insults and our anger and our insecurity and our jealousy, and we put it on someone else, and we can maim and hurt them more so than a real spear. How much emotional pain is suffered in homes today because of those who permit their minds to dwell on jealousy? James wrote, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. Let's flip over to James real quick. Book of James, New Testament. Near the end of the New Testament, if you are using one of the black hardback Bibles around you, it's going to be on page 1012. It's also printed inside your bulletins if you don't want to take the time to to turn there. But James chapter 3, starting in verse 13, says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works 
in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Every vile practice. This is how it works. This is how jealousy works. It, it produces these things. So I heard a story one time. I think I've even shared it with you guys. It's a story of two men living in this one city. Right? One of the guys was envious and one of the guys was covetous. And the ruler of the city set up this situation and set up this kind of game he was going to do on these guys. And he said that he would give to each one of them anything that they asked for. But he said that the first guy who goes, the first guy who goes, you will get anything that you ask for, right? But the stipulation is that I'm going to give double to the second guy. And so the guy's thinking to himself, he's like, man, I want, you know, pay off my house. Um, millions of dollars, uh, da, 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 you know, whatever it could be. But if I do that, this guy's going to give more than that. So he says, you know what? I know what I want for my wish. I want you to pluck one of my eyes out. So the other guy loses both, right? That's a bit of twisted humor, but is that not how we often live in our lives sometimes? We so resent that someone else might have more than us. They might have it better than us. They might succeed more than us. They might get, you know, uh, notoriety or acknowledgement more than us. That we get so angry about it. And we'd rather even see difficulty in our own lives, this guy losing one eye, so that it might mean that our lives is better than someone else's. Right? We would rather see them below us. We get so resentful. Like at work, you get passed over for a promotion. And your coworker gets it. And you get passed over for a job, and your friend gets it. What do you do? You fake happiness for it. I am so happy for oh, I'm so, I am so happy for you. That's just great. You do such a great job. I am so much more qualified. I've got a better resume. Da, da, da. Right? It's jealousy. And it's evil. It's, it's, here, it's actually demonic. It's not just workplace, though. It can be anything. Neighborhoods. Looking at houses. Knowing people's salaries. Seeing what people drive. Their kids. Their spouses. Their successes. Their, their, our, Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. So the l- list of things we could put here is limitless. That we could get resentful and envious and, je- and covetousness, covet, covet over, because jealousy and covetousness are kissing cousins. As I was reminded this week, jealousy reveals our deepest loves. It reveals our deepest loves. If we're jealous, then we, like Saul, put more weight on ourselves and our wants and our needs and our desires than the weight of God's desires for us. 
Do we love what we love? Or do we love what God loves? Bitter jealousy is not the wisdom of God. James 3, again, 15, 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above, so here's what it looks like, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so beware of self-centered jealousy. It will eat your soul. And so fight it now. Fight it now. Like a tiger cub, you can hold it in, you can clip its claws, but when it's full grown, uh uh-uh. And so fight it now. Make war on it now. How do you you make war on it? You embrace the gospel. And you stop believing the lie that who you are is what you do. And that you are defined by your successes and by how those in the world view you. That's what makes up your value. You stop that nonsense and you find your identity in Christ. See, the gospel frees us not only from our sin, not only from the wrath of God that we deserve, but it frees us to be who Christ created and called us to be. And not have to try to be someone else. He only created one Steve Qualls. Steve Qualls does not need to try to be Ken Coker. You guys should probably not sit on the first couple of rows. You'll get picked on. That was bad. Now you guys are all going to move to the back. And we're already like back row Baptists. But he only created one. He didn't create somebody else. And so it frees us up to be who Christ says we are. And what does Christ say who we are? He says that we're deeply loved. He says that we are forgiven of our sin by His blood on the cross, that we are valued and we are set on His purposes. Only the power of the gospel will kill jealousy. Only. But jealousy is a tiger prowling around. And so beware of it. It will eat your soul just like it does Saul's. I mean, the whole rest of these three chapters and really the rest of the entire book is Saul in jealousy trying to kill David. It eats his soul alive. And so let's jump back into the story. Saul's covert plan for David to die in battle has failed. He's now married to Mishael. And so Saul stops playing the game of covertly trying to have him die and just starts straight up plotting his murder. So look at chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, told, told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king 
sin against his servant David? Because he has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his own hand and he struck down the Philistine. And the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. That's awesome. It lasted like five minutes. Because jealousy eats at your soul if you don't deal with it. So war breaks out. David leads the army into a huge victory. And then David returns. Saul again throws his spear at him, trying to kill him. And his danger in, in his jealousy, David is forced to flee, and he makes his way to his to his and his wife Michal's house. Alright, so he gets there, and then David or Saul puts out a hit on David and has people go surround the house and wait. Look at verse 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Mishael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Mishael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Sounds kind of like Rahab. Mishael took an image and laid it on the... What, what, why do they have an image? I don't know. And laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. So this is like, we've seen Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings, and they've got, they're like, build up the beds and fake that they're sleeping. That's kind of what's going on here. Pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. So like knocking at the door, he's like, he's sick. You guys can't come in. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David so they're wanting to come in now, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. So that's what Saul wants them to do. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Mishael, why have you deceived me thus? And let my enemy go that he has escaped. Because she's just totally worked the system, right? She's to- like buying him some time. And then she buys him some more time and Continues the deception. And Mishael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Like, that I had to. He was going to kill me if I didn't. And so word gets back to Saul that, you know, David's now hiding down at, like he flees from there and he goes down to Samuel's house at Ramah. Look at verse 18. Now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naioth. And so word gets back to Saul that he's down at Ramah, with, that David's down there with Samuel. This is the first mention of Samuel since chapter 16. And Saul and all his anger and all his jealousy, he's got beef with Samuel as well because Samuel was the Lord's voice to reject him as the king. And so now, not even being with Samuel will keep Saul from pursuing to try to kill him. And this is where it gets a little crazy. He, send, he puts a hit out on him again. Sends these guys down there to go kill him. 
They get there and they see Samuel and David, some other prophets prophesying. And the Spirit of the Lord comes on them and compels them. They, can't, they are helpless and they start prophesying. So he sends them down. They join in the worship of God. He sends a second group of hitmen down. They also join in the worship of God. He sends a third set of hitmen down. They also join in the worship of God and not carrying out what Saul said. And so you can almost just see Saul saying, if you want a job done right, you've got to do it yourself. And so Saul himself goes to Ramah. And so he gets there and just straight up raw power of God knows that, Saul, that, 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 that David is in a bad place. He cannot escape. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul and he also, this ungodly, begins glorifying God. He begins prophesying, and it results, and this is where it's crazy, somehow, I don't, it's, not like, it's like a drunk frat party, but it's not. For 24 hours, he's passed out naked on the floor. I'm not kidding you. Verse 24, chapter 19, And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? And so whatever's going on in there, I, I almost feel like God's just... I mean, he just showed up and he's like, fine, you're going to try to kill him. I'm just going to put you naked on the floor for 24 hours and give my boy a chance to get out. And in that 24 hours, that's what he does. He flees. David flees. And where does he go? He goes to Jonathan's house. He goes to his best friend's house. And so he shows up to Jonathan's house. And remember, Jonathan and he have made a covenant to one another. It's an unbreakable bond of brotherhood. Jonathan had signed over his claim to the throne and gave it to David, and he had promised to, like, they promised to always have each other's back. I mean, this is an unbelievable example of, of a godly friendship, something that we'll be exploring at 6 a.m. on September the 28th at the men's breakfast. Friendship. All right, but he's at his house. Chapter 20, verse 1. Look at it with me. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said, and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan doesn't really believe him. Last night he knew, like, it's going to be okay. And Jonathan says, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does, no, does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David bowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I found favor in your eyes. He knows that we're boys, so he's not going to tell you. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And so they concoct this plan to test slash prove that Saul wants to kill David. And since they're not really sure that they'll be able to see one another to talk about, you know, yes or no, they concoct this plan where they'll shoot arrows and one thing means yes, he wants to kill you. Another thing means no, he does not want to kill you. And so the test ensues and Saul gets angry again in the midst of this test. And instead of throwing his spear at David, because David's not there, he throws it at Jonathan and tries to kill Jonathan because Jonathan has chosen God over Saul. He's chosen God's kingdom over an earthly kingdom. 
He's deeded over his claim to the throne. And so Saul is incensed that his son would do this. And so Jonathan goes out and he sends out the signal. Yes, he wants to kill you. He just tried to kill me. But as it worked out, he and David are able to have a chat real quick before David has to flee for good. And you'll find that in verse 41 of chapter 20. Look at it with me. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we've sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. And we'll see this come up, that later on David provides for Jonathan's kids. He takes care of his kids and his offspring. But they get together, and they weep, and they cry. Right? Anyone who's weirded out by this show of affection between these two men or sinfully tries to twist it to fit a homosexual agenda, which some people do with this text, they know nothing of the bonds that are formed in foxholes. These men have been, at, been in war together. They have fought together. They have bled together. They've seen friends die together. Nor do they appreciate, like, if you're trying to create some narrative or, or you're weirded out by this, you, you, you don't really appreciate the situation that they are facing. These two men are likely never, ever going to see one another again. And they are absolute best friends. Take a bullet for one another. Never going to see one another again. Best friend. And if you do see one another again, you're probably going to be on opposing sides of a battle. I mean, I can remember back to my college days, my best friend Dan and I. We were best friends all throughout high school. We lived together for five years. Yes, I went to college for five years. All through college. We were roommates. We went through thick and thin together. We had been through the trenches together. And then even years later, like when he got married, I'd already been married for, I don't know, four or five years. I tried to give him a toast at his like wedding pre-wedding or rehearsal dinner. And I blubbered. I blubbered. Because he meant so much to me. Or even when we launched Tom out of here, Tom Agnew, we planted him in a new church. And we were recognizing him on a Wednesday night. I blubbered. Because he means so much to me. Now Dan and Tom, I still see them. I saw Tom this week. I texted Tom this morning. I was like, where's my whiteboard? You borrowed it and didn't bring it back. We need a whiteboard. But I knew I was going to see them, and I still blubbered. These guys are never going to see each other. And they've got bonds like that. And so they cry. And so through their tears, they say their goodbyes. I won't see you again. And they'll see each other one more time. Way down the line. And we'll get there. And through their tears, they say their goodbyes. And through their tears, Jonathan says, verse 42 to David, Go in peace. Go in peace. 
That makes no sense. Go in peace while my dad is trying to kill you. And he's putting hits on you. You've got to flee because he throws spears at you, at me. He wants to kill you. He is enraged. He's coming after you. He has the army. You're by yourself. Go in peace. But what's happening here is that this isn't saying that, that, that everything, like David, go and your life's going to be hunky-dory and it's going to be peaceful. He's not wishing him peace that's built on circumstances. He's wishing him peace that's built on God. See, biblical peace is not a, you know, tr- gentle tranquility of life. Rather, it's a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. A rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil or much mess. See, our lives are filled with risk. We may not have people coming after us to kill us. But our lives are filled with risk. Walking down this stage is risky. Driving your car is risky. But even beyond those things, am I going to wake up in the morning? Am I going to have a job tomorrow? Is my child going to be healthy tomorrow? Am I going to be healthy tomorrow? I mean, if we sat here and tried to think through and plot on some sort of like, you know, decision diagram, all the risks, all the possibilities of our life, I mean, it would be staggering. It would be beyond our ability to even think through. We can't know that. We don't know the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We can't know what's going to happen. But there are some things that we do know. And those are the things you have to hang on to in turmoil. Not what you can't control. Not what you don't know. But what you can control and what you do know. And what we do know is that God is good. And that He is sovereign. That He's in control. There's nothing outside of His control. And that knowledge, you hang on to that rock, that anchor that holds in the midst of the storm, that will provide stability in an uncertain world. The fact that God is good and the fact that He is in control. And so because of who He is, this is why we want to sing big God songs. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent over all things. Because of that, because He's sovereign over everything, we can and should walk, and this is number two in your notes, in a God-centered confidence. Walk in a God-centered confidence. That's why Jonathan says go in peace. Not because things are peaceful in their lives, but because God's on His throne. He's promised a kingdom to David and nothing can stop God. So go in peace, brother. Yeah, it's going to be hard. Yes, spears are going to be thrown. There's going to be battles. There's going to be warfare. We're not even going to be able to hang out anymore. But it's going to be okay. God's on His throne. He's in control. So walk in God-centered confidence. I mean, in the midst of uncertainty and in the midst of mess that we talk about, friends, instead of rehearsing imaginary dooms and creating false narratives in our minds, instead of spinning our wheels on idle speculation focused on what we don't know, let's focus on what we do know and hang on to it. 
Let's focus on what God has called us to do. When the unknown taunts your mind, because it will, remember God. He's real. That's pretty basic to Christianity. And He's active. And He's there. Remember who He is. Don't build your life on little Christian cliches that are trinkets of nothingness. Build them on the solid rock of who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. Don't let fear of the unknown paralyze you into inaction. Because of who God is, walk in a God-centered courage in the midst of your uncertainties. Because He's good, because He's sovereign, because He's for you. That's the whole message of the cross. If He wasn't for you, He wouldn't have sent His Son to die on your, in your place for your sins. And so trust Him. And move forward in peace. Not based on your circumstances, but based on who God is. He meets us in the mess. He will not abandon. He will not forsake. He will not leave. He will walk through with us through the valley. His rod and His staff will comfort us. Because He's good and He's sovereign. Walk with confidence. Let's pray. Father, fix our eyes on you. We want to fix our eyes on everything around us. We want to base our lives on circumstances in our lives. We want to base our fears on circumstances in our lives. We want to base our decisions on circumstances in our lives. But Father, give us faith. To fix our eyes on you. That you are who you say you are. You will come through as you say you will come through. You will provide. Your promises are true, are sure, are steady, are firm, are unshakable. And Father, cause us to long for your kingdom, not ours. And help us to remember that these promises are true of your kingdom, not the kingdoms we want. Father, forgive us for our jealousy and change us. Make us humble servants who walk with a quiet, humble but ferocious inward confidence in who you are and what you've called us to do. And that this life is not all there is. And we live for a bigger kingdom and for a brighter day that is to come. Even as we seek to bring glory to your name now and good to our neighbors now.
in Christ's name.